If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. does believe he's Christ's deputy on earth, you know, he really does believe he's a ruler with his, his status of an Old Testament patriarch. That was John Guy talking about Henry VIII. Within a relatively short period of time, Henry the Young King finds himself fighting against both Richard the Lionheart and his father through the early months of 1183. And that was Thomas Asbridge discussing a forgotten medieval king. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of January 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Professor John Guy, one of Britain's best known historians of the Tudor age. His latest book is a concise biography of Henry VIII, which considers many aspects of the monarch's life, from his relationship with his wives to his views on kingship. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, caught up with John at Clare College, Cambridge, to find out more. So firstly, what first led you to get involved in this Penguin Monarchs series? They asked me to do it. <laughs> Excellent. Um, did you, how long ago did you first hear about the project? It was just before Christmas. It must have been at the end of 2011, the beginning of 20, just before 2012. Okay. Uh, basically, um, I saw Tom Penn from Penguin, and you know, we had a coffee, and uh, we sort of settled it all in about 20 minutes. Lovely. Um, and what was it about the series that appealed to you? Oh, well, I think that um, this is actually quite an imaginative move to do 44 books of this sort of length in a series coming out all within a couple of years. Mm. It's a pretty bold, but it's a brilliant move. Mm. It's the sort of thing that when you thought of it, it was obvious, but yeah. it wasn't obvious till you thought of it. Okay. Uh, I think, though, for me, it was a good opportunity because I've actually never written a book just on Henry VIII. The closest was to do Henry VIII um, you know, and his children. Mm. And it occurred to me, you know, I've been doing this now for nearly 40 years. It was time to actually have a re-engineer and rethink you know, the whole 
topic yeah. and come yeah. back to it differently. Mm. Uh, and I was ready for that. And uh, I also had gone out and bought a copy of the 1649 edition of Lord Herbert of Sherbury's Life of Henry, which he'd written really in the um, 1630s. And he'd been given complete access by Charles I to the papers. He'd had a little office mm. actually in Whitehall Palace uh, for, for, for a while. And, and Herbert actually quite interesting because he's much closer to Henry than, than obviously than we are. I mean, he was writing, you know, barely 100 years, or less than 100 years after Henry's death. He also had access to papers that have now been destroyed Okay. Uh, essentially, in the Catonian Library fire in the you know, in the mid eighteenth century, mm. uh, and actually, what I found, I, I found Herbert's whole take quite interesting, and I found we maybe come back to that a bit in this uh, interview, mm. and uh, I found also his quotations from sources absolutely impeccable. Okay. Unlike William Camden's on Elizabeth, where they tend to be doctored or paraphrased. Mm. Uh, and that was sort of interesting to me, because when you start checking them, actually, you could see, ah, yeah, this guy actually was doing things in a, in a, in a way that we would regard now as actually pretty scholarly. Oh, that's cool, yeah. Um, so thinking back to Henry's early life, um, what was his childhood like, and, and how did it shape his later, his later life? Well, the big influences on, on Henry's childhood are clearly his mother, Elizabeth of York, and, and his father, Henry... The seventh, and I have to say that certainly in this part of the book, you know, we're all very much in debt to David Starkey's life of, of of Henry as a young as a young prince, essentially the virtuous prince book, because he really has gone back to the archives and pieced things back together again. Uh, but I, you know, I was able to find one or two new things, I and mean, Starkey had always suggested that. It was uh, Henry, his mother, who taught him to write and was more involved in the early education than, you know, that was normal, actually. Well, normally, the, the, the prince was taken away quite early and, and actually given to official... Mm. You know, once they were... Certainly by the time they were five or six, they were taken away. But, but, but Henry um, was actually um, clearly very, very close to his mother. Uh, and uh, uh, in the Folger Library, uh, uh, there's actually a marvellous um, thing. There's a copy of Henry's Cicero, his school text of Cicero, with his name in the front. You know, this book is mine, Prince Henry. But the handwriting's a dead ringer for his mother's. Oh, wow. And the book is absolutely full of annotations by Henry, all of which are absolute dead ringers for Elizabeth of York's hand. So, you know, clearly the, 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 there, is some, there is some influence there. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing, of course, is that... Um, Henry had a schoolroom mentor, you know, somebody who was older than, you know, older than uh, than, than than him, um, you know, ten years or so. Um, William Blunt, uh, Lord Mountjoy, uh, and of course he was the stepson of Elizabeth of York's Lord Chamberlain, and that seemed to me to be quite a a strong, again, a strong link with his mother. Mm. But clearly, uh, after Arthur's Prince Arthur's death in 1502, in those last years of the reign, clearly uh, Henry. The seventh, you know, very much takes you know, the young Prince Henry under his wing and effectively makes him his apprentice. I mean, by the time that Philip the Handsome comes in 1506 to, to Windsor, you know, Prince Henry is simply shadowing his father in, in, in just about everything. And you know, by then, the boy's 15, he's able to take things in. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, there's, there are many things that follow from this because the, you know, the last years of Henry VII's reign are you know, really quite dark. Uh, you know, with a lot of dynastic conspiracy, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of worries about security, and, and clearly, this this feeds into Henry's character later. Mm. Uh, David Starkey made quite a big thing of of Philip the Handsome, uh, you know, who of course was Archduke of the Netherlands, twenty seven, you know, a fine sportsman, you know, everything a everything a prince should be. Yes. 
a uh, group with the girls as well, and uh, and clearly he and young Henry hit it off, you know, on a personal basis. Mm. And young Henry takes Sir Philip down to Winchester, and they look at you know what they think is you know King Arthur's well, what had in the Middle Ages been accepted to be King Arthur's round yes. table, yeah. which later Henry VIII, when he you know as a young king, actually gets fixed up and restored, you know, to look like it actually does today. Mm. Uh, in, uh, in 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 in, Winch- in Winchester, but actually, I was able to quite quite by chance. It's just one of those things. Serendipity, you know, is a mar- marvelous thing. I stumbled into this reference while she was writing this book. That uh, twenty years later, Henry VIII was still talking about Philip the Handsome. Really? Okay. So he had uh, a huge impact. Yeah. yeah. He, you know, he, he did. So this idea of the sort of the idea, the physical, the physical presence. That that's sort of charismatic, attractive, sportsman-like, athletic, you know, jousting, um, gambling uh, prince, but also a cultured one, you know, who liked art and um, music and, and 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 you know letters and and all of that, mm. uh, you know, within a certain reason. Uh, this was something that made a mark on Henry. Mm. Are there any other factors or characters who played a, a big role? In uh, yeah, well, I think there are. I think there are incidents. There are definitely incidents. I mean, when Henry was um, 1497, when Henry's basically six, mm. uh, of course, there's the big, you know, um, the big, the big crisis of the first big crisis of Henry VII's reign, Warbeck's Rebellion, you know, the Cornish Rebellion. Mm. Uh, the young Henry and his mother are whisked off to the security of the tower, you know, where they're there for a week, you know, with guards around them. That that has to have made a, you know, if you're a, you know basically six-year-old, you know, that has to have made a big uh, impression on you. Uh, And, uh, of course, also uh, in the later years of of Henry's reign, the Duke of Buckingham was talked of as a possible successor, Edward Stafford. Of course, Henry goes after him in 1521, notoriously. Hmm. Edmund de la Poole fled abroad, you know, one of the Plantagenet uh, potential claimants to the throne. You know, his brother, Richard de la Poole, also runs off. I mean, Henry VII... Gets him back. Actually, he does a bargain with Philip the Handsome when Philip the Handsome's actually in in, in in Windsor, and he gets him back. But you know, Henry's alerted to dynastic conspiracy in, you know, in a very big way, and I mean, it's it's actually interesting when you know, there is this conversation, which one of Henry the Seventh's spies you know reports back uh, at the garrison at Calais that they're all talking about the succession. Henry's not been well. Henry the Seventh's not been well. Mm. You know, who's going to succeed? And you know, the one person they don't mention, you know, is Prince Henry. Wow. So it can have an impact, isn't it? Definitely. That I think those being... things, psychologically, I think those things yeah. are important because, see, the great mystery about Henry, I and mean, this is something that when you taught it for years, you, 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 you wonder about how is it that, 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 that a ruler who was actually so secure, you know, not least with the monastic wealth, but is actually so secure psychologically, so often feels insecure. Hmm. Uh, and this has to go back to this period. There's very, another very interesting reference that I actually stumbled, stumbled across also. Uh, that um, George Putnam actually says in The Art of Poesy, of course, that's in, we're in Elizabeth's reign there, but he actually says that the great thing about Henry VIII was that he, that, that he could never hold another man's gaze for more than a few moments. You know, he, he, you know, he always had to look away. Really? And I thought that was quite interesting. You, you would think, oh, yeah, but that's yeah, just, you know, one of these ghastly anecdotes that you know, circulate after 40 or 50 years, until you realise, you actually realise that Putnam's mother was Marjorie Elliot, who was uh, the sister of um, the clerk of Henry VIII's council. You know, so that's a, a very close... Seen, a man who'd seen... Yeah, exactly. A man who'd seen Henry at work, you know, mm. and understood his character. Because that isn't something we associate you know, with Henry, that he couldn't kind of keep eye contact with somebody. You wouldn't think that of him from the images we have in our heads, necessarily. No, but that's because Holbein's very clever. I mean, Holbein is, you know, master of the, of the craft. Mm. Excellent. So by the time that Henry comes to the throne, um, what lessons do you think that he's learned from his father, either kind of directly or indirectly? 
Well, I think he's learned, he's learned two things. Domestic security means having an heir, a male heir. Mm. Uh, and Henry has virtually become, I mean, he's barely become king when he decides to marry Catherine of Aragon. Actually, it's the second time he's married her because he married her at first, but they didn't quite finish it. Mm. Uh, uh, it suited Henry VII's diplomacy once uh, the Archduke Philip um, you know, had become king of Castile. He wasn't sure about whether or not Spain would stay united. A lot of political ramifications. Yes, yes. Uh, and so they, they, they basically you know, sidelined Catherine of Aragon you know, till the end of the reign. But I, th- I, th- I think when Henry married Catherine of Aragon, he knew he's driven by this again, the need for progeny, mm. for security. Yeah. And of course, they, they are very lucky, as it seems. You know, I mean, basically at New Year 1511, they have a prince, you know, baptised Henry. Unfortunately, the child dies within a, in a, in a few weeks. Mm. Um, but um, no, I think that's absolutely sure. I think Henry's suspicions, the sort of suspicions that you get, you know, 1518, 1519, we're not sure of the, the year, when Henry writes this really confidential letter to Wolsey, you know, keep close eye on the Duke of Buckingham, the Duke of Suffolk, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, this dynastic suspicion is always, uh, is, 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 is always, is always there, is always there. Yeah. What was your impression of Wolsey when you were writing the book? Of Wolsey? Mm. Well, Wolsey, I've known for... I mean, I did my PhD on the you know, aspect of, of, of Wolsey. I'm rather a, a fan of Wolsey. And Henry and Wolsey had a very interesting relationship, of course, because Henry and Wolsey regarded each other as friends in that early stage, but rather like Thomas Beckett mm. and Henry II had you know, regarded each other as friends. Of course, you were beguiled. If you were a subject, you were beguiled, particularly if you were a butcher's son. Or in Beckett's case, the son of a you know sort of prosperous but mostly middling London merchant. If you thought you could be the friend of a king, yes. the king was using you, and it suited him that you should think he was his friend. And many times he thought he was your friend because, in that part of his mind, in Henry VIII's mind, and particularly in those years, he he was he was largely still the affable prince. Mm. Uh, he could be very generous. He could be very you know chummy. Um, but he, but the thing is, the difference with Cromwell is that whereas Wolsey. He, uh, Henry and Wolsey would walk round the garden, uh, the Privy Garden at your place or, you know, one of the Greenwich Palace or something, and Henry would put his arm round uh, Wolsey and, you know, they'd walk arm in arm and Wolsey would be flattered by this and he never did this with Cromwell. So how much can we see his reign and the actions he takes as a being a quest for fame or immortality? Well, he certainly, well, he, for that, I mean, he wants to, immortality, he wants to rule beyond the grave, of course, that's what his last will was about. But no, no, I mean, Henry, Henry has, he, he, Henry's big in every sense. You know, he's a, he's, he's a, he's a, he's a big man. He, he, I mean, he becomes physically a, a big man. I mean, he's, he's, he's a big mind. Mm. Uh, he's got a hugely you know, ranging um, in, 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 intellect, perhaps not the finest, but, but no, no, I mean, there's no stopping his ambition. No, no, he wants to go down into history. He wants to be the greatest king of England, mm. uh, you know, in every possible in every in every possible sense. And he didn't do a bad job of it, I have to say, because uh, you know you can't get away from him, uh, get, get away from the fact. I mean, you just go down on the underground, just go down on the London underground. I mean, just about every other advert for historic royal palaces, you know, has Henry VIII on it. Or mm. I mean, he's the most reproduced image. Of course, that's why Holbein was so clever. Henry wanted somebody to brand the monarchy and and uh, or to brand the new. You know, if you like, sacral monarchy in which uh, Henry's Christ deputy on earth as supreme head of the church. Mm. Uh, you know, we probably develop this a little bit later in the conversation. You know, when we because I mean, there there are moments when Henry really does think that he can heal the Reformation divide. I mean, he really does have a, a very, very, very big ambition. Let's talk about his wives first of all. 
Um, which of those do you think had the biggest impact on him personally or, I suppose, politically? Oh, undoubtedly, Anne Boleyn. I mean, if it, I mean, Anne Boleyn was the love of his life. I mean, he would do anything for... In those, those early years, and um, well, not just months, in those early years, he would do anything for um, Anne. And she, of course, played her cards extremely well, but, I mean, everybody sort of knows that. But, um, um, I mean, not only did Henry want to make her queen when he starts revising his coronation oath you know when you know basically it's a bit of a shotgun well it's a it's a bit of a shotgun wedding shall we say because uh, you know there's a i mean it can all be explained but but you know, at the last moment they, they marry well really clandestinely i think you know and then there's another marriage later but of course it's because you know, after they've been to calais together and francis as the key thing is francis has not quite but more or less received her as if she was a queen not quite, but he has danced with her mm. at, Can- at Canet. Uh, and uh, he's also promised to help at Rome to break this logjam on the divorce. The foreign policy, which tends to get neglected in Britain, is actually really very, very Im- Im- important. And at that moment, for reasons we needn't talk about now, Francis is in, you know, in big with the Pope, so he's hoping that he can get her. Of course, the shotgun wedding doesn't help, and Francis is furious about it. But anyway, the fact of the matter is that... that, um, that um, you know, she becomes pregnant. You know, they are they are married. They are married. Cranmer pronounces the um, divorce at Dunstable with um, Catherine, Catherine of Aragon, with Catherine um, of Aragon, and then there's then a, a, a massive coronation, which is the sort of the biggest. It's like a two week bonanza. You know, I mean, it's the biggest ceremony that you know is probably ever seen in England. Uh, I think that's probably true, actually. Um, uh, and uh, and Henry revises the coronation. I mean, he at one point he even thinks of making her sort of joint monarch, you know, in a, like a sort of Byzantine. You know, the Byzantines had this thing where you know the the empress could be a, a joint ruler mm-hmm. and have certain sort of a certain portfolio in certain areas and and and, and her own seal. Uh, but that's probably a bit too much. Henry, I mean, I think that there's not time to plan for all of that and get get enough assent for that. So that doesn't actually ha- happen. Of course, it all goes horribly wrong. But but I don't think. Would there have been a, you know, this is one of the things students always argue, would there have been a break with Rome without Anne Boleyn? And I sort of would always have answered, well, no, of course there wouldn't, because Henry is a very conservative, you know, Catholic in doctrine, in sort of doctrine at that point. Yes. But then, you see, you have to just stop back a moment. I mean, there are moments when, I mean, for starters, um, you're just coming back to fame for a moment, because it relates to this, um, you know, fame isn't just about this is what I realised writing this book fame isn't just about the Privy Chamber mural you see, let's just go back a step here and then we'll come back into, come back into Anne Boleyn uh, in 1511 when uh, the Pope Julius II want, the warrior Pope wants Henry to join the Holy League he offers him the title that the King of France has of most Christian king and he'll say he'll take it away from the French and give it to Henry and Henry can be king of France if he joins this Henry thinks this is wonderful he wants to be the most this is it he's the, going to be the most Christian king mm. this is the thing for fame appearing the lust for fame the quest for fame appearing as early as 1511 and this has been completely overlooked now Julius didn't write it down and of course the new Pope Leo you know, the tenth forgets doesn't want to know about this and forgets all about it but of course it underpins it underpins the whole of Henry's approach to dealing with Rome you know right up to really 1521 when he does get the title 
And, you know, we all thought we knew that he got the title for writing the, a book against Luther, the defence of the seven sacraments, except that actually the Pope won't give him the title just for the book. He also has to agree to join the great enterprise against France with Charles the, Charles V, the new Holy Roman Emperor, you know, uh, who's allied with the Pope, etc., etc., etc. And so you see this is not quite so straightforward. And then by the time we get to 1525, you know, Pavia and all the rest of it and the capture of Francis I, there's, there's no doubt that Henry VIII is he's he's not the Pope's loyal son. He's making decisions on his own now without reference to Rome. Something that's always interested me is that he goes to all these lengths to marry Anne Boleyn, and then he seems to very quickly, suddenly, go off her, uh, which you talk about a bit in the book. What were the factors behind this sudden apparent change of heart? Well, of course, Anne had not... First, I mean, first of all, Anne had not delivered the son that she had actually promised i mean she had you know she had actually said well you know if if you know if you do marry me you know i'll be able to do the business and uh, of course it takes so long to get there because she is starting to worry about her own fertility and i mean that, i'm sure that's another reason why once they've been to calais and you know francis the first seems to have given the okay uh that she does actually sleep 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 with him um so that's that 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 that's what that's one thing i mean henry did believe that god spoke through events he did believe in he really did believe in providence and you know when he has you know when he has a daughter you know followed by sort of essentially a couple of miscarriages you know and of course then there's this you know this fetus this son you know that sort of seems to be clearly identifiable to be male and is sort of not delivered and of course anne's excuse is that henry's just had this terrible riding accident yeah uh, you know, and there's some mileage in that. But Henry is, you know, as I think we've said, has no time for any excuses except his own. Of course, he's also seen Jane Seymour. Uh, he's got fed up with Anne. Anne. Anne was a modern woman. She really was not a 16th century woman. She, she had a tongue and she used it. And she could be pretty um, abrasive. Uh, and, I mean, the court... Her side of the household. I mean, the court, courtly love is the, you know, this is the game. This is the sort of the, if you like, the evening, the long winter evenings. Mm. You know, these masks and interludes and so on, you know, they, you know, Henry storming castles to release maidens and all this sort of thing. I mean, the, all of this chivalric uh, stuff, all this chivalric entertainment, I mean, this is the sort of the culture of the court. And there's no doubt that there was a lot of flirting going on in, um, in, you know, on Anne's side of the household and, and some of it got a little bit out of hand. Uh, you know, this... this um, I mean, there are ter- there are the Chinese whispers at the court of Henry VIII are absolutely extraordinary. Of course, it's very difficult to pin a lot of this down with documents. Uh, and I think there was a moment when... There was a moment when... when um, the cards are stacking up against Anne. Uh, and then this conversation is overheard with Norris, you know, and she's turned to Norris and again she shoots her mouth off you know, you look for dead men's shoes. Of course, the other thing, of course, is that she'd intervened in politics. She had opposed the dissolution, at least she'd not dis- dis- opposed the, the dissolution of the small monasteries. She'd opposed um, the, the, the sort of confiscation of the money for the crown rather than for spending it on, on, on basically education and, um, and poor relief, uh, of which she was a bit of a champion. And, and actually Anne gets one of her chaplains, um, a man called Skip, to actually preach a sermon you know, denouncing this in, in which, you know, Thomas Cromwell is compared to... Um, um, you know the bad guy in the book of Esther mm. to Harmon, the book you know the bad guy in the um, in the reign of you know good King Azurus in the in the book of Esther, and uh, this doesn't go down too well with Cromwell, who has um, you know I mean Eric Ives has written about this has fallen out with uh, fallen out fallen out with Anne, and you know this is, seems to be a moment when he can get rid of her. I actually don't agree with Ives that 
and went simply because Cromwell wanted to get rid of her. It didn't work like that. Henry had to decide. Because clearly Anne Boleyn didn't sleep with her brother. I mean, I don't believe Anne... And, and, I mean, Anne knew exactly who she was and how to stay where she was. Yeah. You know, OK, she shot her mouth off too often. Absolutely, but she would not have... She would not have the, you didn't commit adultery at the court of Henry VIII without everybody knowing about it. Yeah. Uh, there was no way, I think, that she, she, would, have, she would have done that. But, and I, I think it must have been Cromwell who decided that not only would you do, go for multiple adultery, you'd go with incest, because, of course, the one thing that made Henry so... to find Catherine of Aragon so repugnant was this idea that, you know, the, the book of Leviticus said that, you know, if you slept with your brother's wife, it was an abomination, you know, you would be childless. But it was a relationship which he'd been told was also incestuous. Mm. Uh, and incest he abominated. And so, if you know, if Anne is accused of incest, that's the, you know, that's the, that's the, pit, that's the pits. Yeah. We should talk about Cromwell. What do you make of him? Well, Cromwell, I mean, is, you know, I mean, along with Wolsey, is the most capable person that Henry has, of course, was after Henry's death, um, uh, Henry um, recognised rec- recognized that. There's a difference in the relationship, you know, which I've, I've sort of known probably for about 15 or 20 years, uh, that I never knew when I first started in this game. Uh, and, it, and it's that, um, that whereas Wolsey could just walk in to Henry... I mean, Cromwell is still, you know, pretty much making the equivalent of appointments. You know, he's not... He's not Henry never thinks of him as his friend. Okay. He's his servant. Wolsey was his servant, but he was also his friend. And Wolsey, too, was... You know, because he was a cardinal, was a sort of genuinely international figure who had status, um, you know, beyond the English court. But Cromwell is there to do a job. But Cromwell is a man with a mission. Uh, Cromwell is not... In my view, if you like, the, the, the sort of secular-minded, progressive, you know, almost sort of post-enlightenment, pre-enlightenment figure of you know reform and renewal that you know that comes out from the scholar, some of the scholarly writings of you know my old teacher Geoffrey Elton, you know, again who was you know from this very this very college, or has been you know is appearing now you know in the novels of Hilary Mantel. Uh, Cromwell was driven by religion. And again, this is where I really hit gold in writing this book. And this is where I really re-engineered how I think about uh, Henry, although obviously it's only a, in a book of this size, it's only quite a small part of the book. Uh, because it was... Um, you see, Henry, for starters, for starters, Cromwell was never made second minister from the start. He was just basically a useful man of business who could basically manage help to steer bills through Parliament and do paperwork, that sort of stuff. He was, he was more than a bookkeeper. Uh, but the ideas were coming from Fox and Cranmer. Uh, Cromwell was helping to put them into practice. Of course, Cromwell had come to the fore because he'd been Wolsey's right-hand man. And so when Wolsey fell, it was, it was Cromwell who knew where all the secret assets were, you know, again, where everything was, where all the bodies were buried and all the rest of it. So, you know, he had this access to access to, 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 to Henry. But so actually, I do not believe that Cromwell was the second minister, you know, in the, in, in the sort of the full sense of that until after the fall of Anne Boleyn. I mean, in many ways, Anne Boleyn was the, you know, was the, um, the second minister and, you know, Wolsey was, and, and Cromwell was the, the sort of the third. But the minute that, the minute that Anne is dead, um, Cromwell is given, is given, he's given much more power by Henry because he's given a commission 
to um, as uh, they again they called it vice gerent in spirituals, which basically means number two deputy supreme. It means number two supreme head of the church, you no know, deputy supreme head of the church. Uh, the king's literally vice gerent, the king's deputy. Uh, and this time, it's not just to investigate the wealth and and um, morality, the state of morals in the monasteries. It's to actually to do things. It's to do things. It's a commission that's as extensive as the one that Wolsey had when he was a papal legate, a plenipotentiary papal legate with powers second only to the Pope. So he can really start to do things now. Uh, of course, he, he meets opposition. He meets the pilgrimage of grace, of course, and then he's on the back foot for quite a long time. But you see, it's Cromwell. Cromwell, what, what does he achieve? Uh, he major stru- steps forward in defining the doctrine of the English church in a more reformed direction. And secondly, he puts the English Bible in the hands of the people in stages, uh, culminating in 1539 with you know, the great Bible, the official Bible. It starts in 1536 you know, with Coverdale's Bible, which is not official, uh, but you know, Cromwell helps to steer it through, actually, ironically, with a bit of help from Anne Boleyn in the early stages. Uh, because she wants the English Bible too. So they don't disagree about everything. Um, But at that time, again, Henry's idea is to print the Latin Vulgate in a new edition for which he actually chooses the typeface. That's that's his obsession. Henry's not sure about the English Bible. He's not sure about any of this. Uh, And it's always been argued that Cromwell went behind, very cleverly went behind Henry's back and then got caught out. I don't believe that now for a moment. Because, and this throws light not just on Henry, but on Cromwell that essentially Henry, once he has got over you know, the break with Rome and he's made himself you know, supreme head of the church, uh, the next thing on the horizon is that the Pope is thinking of calling a general council of the church. And I basically got the, the leads out of this from Herbert of Sherbury. Okay. Uh, and then you start to look for it and you see actually this, this adds up. The Pope had called a general council of church. Now I understand why everybody was banging on, you know, in those sort of years, particularly sort of, you know, 35, 36, 37, about the general council of the church and the role of kings and princes. Henry approached France, but he also approached the Schmalkaldic League, essentially the Lutheran princes, to basically touch base, as we would say today, to see, you know, how they could all present a, a, a sort of, if you like, a coordinated line at a, at a council of the church. And Henry was particularly keen that it should be constituted in the way that it was in the later Roman Empire, i.e. kings and princes were fully represented as well as bishops. Because, frankly, he got the idea of chairing the thing. He got the idea not just of chairing it, but also sort of bridging the Reformation divide. James the um, Sixth and First had a similar idea uh, uh, that you could somehow bridge this, this divide. And of course, it again is appealed to his, you know, his desire for for fame, and he he starts. You know, we won't go into the detail of this, but he, he he starts a lot of conversations, lasting really, you know, sort of five or six years, with the Lutheran princes. Of course, it culminates in the Cleves marriage. Cleves, actually, funnily enough, isn't quite. It's not actually Lutheran as such, but it's thinking of joining the Schmalkaldic League, and it's actually that suits Henry better because it's not quite Lutheran, and he doesn't want to be a Lutheran because he doesn't accept. He doesn't accept Luther's doctrine of justification by faith. But he does accept uh, everything that Luther says about Scripture as the word of God and being the supreme authority. That Scripture and not tradition, not Catholic tradition, but Scripture alone, the word of God alone. And Henry almost devises his own theology in which the word of God is almost like a sort of super sacrament. Mm. And he largely sticks to that. 
you know, never mind about this. There is a there is a, a sort of slight backtracking with the six articles, but I, I go into this in the book, and you know, people can perhaps read this in the in the, in the, in the book because it ventures into theology a little bit. But but that that backtracking is actually it seems much more than it really was because of course the Elizabethan Protestants thought it was a betrayal, right? But actually, it was it was a much less. What Henry didn't couldn't stand was mediation through priests. He wanted he it was to be mediation through Henry. He was he was the supreme. He was the supreme head. He was Christ's deputy on earth. Moving ahead towards the latter part of his reign, how much was Henry's later life uh, kind of characterised by his physical illness, his physical ill health? Well, I mean, clearly, I mean, clearly, psychologically as well as physically. My argument, I go through, I run through the medical options actually in this book a little bit. I'm quite interested in medical history because it must have had a big impact on people's life. That's just obvious. I mean, we know it has a big impact on our lives. So, and we've got the benefit of medical science. Um, I, 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 I think you have to say with that degree of obesity, you know, the 54-inch, um, you know, sort of chest and so on, all the rest of it, you have to, um, you have to go for a type two um, diabetes. A diabetes brought on by obesity, and Henry had terrible urination problems. He, you know, he he was he was drinking a lot. He was urinating, you know, a lot. He found urination difficult. A lot of things that you can. He was also horribly constipated. Um, most of his medicaments, you know, for that sort of for that sort of um, thing. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, that um, you can see him as he deteriorates physically. You can see sort of clearer signs of paranoia, like uh, just as his father, you know, mm. in the case with his father, you know, coming into it. I mean, he encourages spies and informers to in- intercept his courtiers' private letters. You know, his ambassadors abroad say that you know he keeps his intentions so secret to the point where they can't do their jobs uh, anymore. Um, you know, ambassadors would say that you know he dressed to go to mass or sit in the privy garden and then just say put brooding over what the French or the Scots were plotting. Uh, uh, of course, he had terrible trouble with his legs. Initially, one leg in, initially, and then and a left leg, and then both legs, um, and, and probably caused by a chronic, um, um, basically, damage to the bone, mm. uh, osteomyelitis. You know, basically, you know, fracturing the bone in um, in riding in riding and tournament accidents, and um, and and then basically the thing ulcerating and having to be lanced and all the rest of it. Uh, so he was he was in terrible pain. I mean, there was, one, ulcers, there was one occasion when he's you know he's been sort of basically he's sort of black in the face and can't speak for you know sort of days on end, and then the thing's quarter you know lanced and cauterized, and he sort of comes back a bit. So naturally, I mean, under unbearable pain, he you know he 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 gets more and more sort of suspicious. He mutters more and more about you know his counselors and subjects and what they're doing. He threatens to make them so poor that they would not have the boldest or the power to oppose him. Um, looking back then at his reign, um, what would you say his most notable strengths were? Well, he's a big man in every sense. I mean, he's you know he's 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 this is a charismatic man. This is a man that when he walked into a room, you would stand up. I mean, literally, mm. and take your hat off. Um, you know, he he was clearly something of an orator. Uh, it was said during his last speech in Parliament that you know he had the ability to make grown men weep. Uh, he was, you know, he was certainly brave, and uh, he was a great huntsman. He was, you know, I'm not a hunting person, but you know, he was a great huntsman, jousting, pole vaulting. He was more prudent in war, but then he probably would have to be, in, you know, leading his army. The council was always very worried if the king wanted to leave his army, uh, lead his army into into war. Uh, I think he was willing to promote men of low birth. You know, like Wolsey and Cromwell, 
Stephen Gardner even, who was essentially an orphan boy, son of a cloth maker from East Anglia. I mean, I'm not a fan of Stephen Gardner, but I mean, you know, he, 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 was, able to, he was able to rise. Mm. He could be loving to wives and children, but they damn well had to obey him. Yeah. Uh, and they weren't to meddle in religion. And Berlin did meddle in religion, sometimes with Henry's you know, agreement, because he loved her so much. Catherine Parr, interestingly, will talk religion to Henry, but she gets into the most terrible trouble. Yeah. But, of course, he also had his terrible weaknesses. You know, and, I mean, clearly those are a ferocious desire for revenge when he's thwarted. Uh, he vindictively pursues people he, that he decides have betrayed him. And, of course, most notably, loyal servants and, and, and even relatives. I mean, Moore and Fisher, you know, two of the most loyal servants he ever had, especially Moore. Reginald Poole and his family are sort of simply destroyed because, you know, they won't go along with the divorce and with the break with Rome. He's utterly egocentric. Mm. He becomes a bit of a megalomaniac. I don't think you can really disagree with that. It verges on megalomania anyway. Um, you know, he really does believe he's Christ's deputy on earth. You know, he really does believe he's a ruler with the status of an Old Testament patriarch. Um, he punishes crimes of the mind. Now, that's an important point. But Henry wants to look inside your head. He doesn't just want out the conformity. Uh, certainly from those key people. And that's the big difference with Elizabeth I, who was quite happy to have out the conformity. She didn't want to know what people were thinking. It was dangerous. You didn't want it. Just don't go there. Mm. It causes too much trouble. Uh, Henry does believe he's a man of conscience. When he breaks with Rome, he believes that you know, he's following his conscience. He really does believe that, you know, what's in this dossier is something that he has an obligation to bring about in order to remake England mm. in the way that it, you know, always was and the way that it should 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 be. That was John Guy. Henry VIII, The Quest for Fame, in the Penguin Monarch series, is out now, published by Alan Lane. And you can read more from John and Matt in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's issue, we explore the closing months of the Second World War from a military and domestic perspective. We find out about Charles II's sex obsession, and we get the inside story of Wolf Hall. You can get hold of our January issue in all good news agents and digitally. And if you'd like to take out a subscription and you're in the UK, then you can currently take advantage of a special offer whereby you'll get your first five issues for just £1 each. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe to find out more about this deal, which ends on the 28th of January. And if that interview whetted your appetite for all things Tudor, then you might be interested in our new digital mini-guide, which tells the story of this fascinating dynasty through 50 moments that mattered most. It's available now from the BBC History magazine app on both the iPad and the iPhone. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son? They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Phone. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarlane. The British Library's six million strong collection of unique sound recordings, from the voice of Florence Nightingale to the testimony of First World War soldiers, could be lost forever within the next 15 years, its experts have warned. Around £40 million is now required to fully digitise the collection before it becomes inaudible or inaccessible as the methods of playing them disappear. The library says time is running out to preserve the recording safely. In an article published in the Daily Telegraph, curator Will Prentice said, We run a real risk of losing part of our collective memory. Certain sounds or collections may become unplayable and we may lose important parts of our heritage. Among the recordings considered most at risk are recordings of local accents and dialects used to monitor the evolution of the English language the life stories of First World War prisoners of war and the voices of Christabel Pankhurst and James Joyce. In other news, the perception of Richard III as a nasty villain who murdered his nephews is, quote, one of the greatest injustices of history, according to Philippa Langley, a screenwriter who led the search for the remains of the former king. Appearing on BBC Radio 4's Great Lives, Langley said Richard III was, quote, most certainly a great king who wanted to, quote, make life fairer and more bearable for ordinary people. Speaking to presenter Matthew Paris, alongside Richard III biographer Annette Carson, Langley said Richard was not the prime suspect in the disappearance of the princes in the tower. She said, for Richard to enact a murder like that when he was already the anointed king of England, Richard would be putting his crown in jeopardy. To read more about this story visit historyextra.com. Meanwhile, the train that transported the coffin of wartime Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill from his London state funeral to Oxfordshire is set to go on display at a museum in York. The 34051 Winston Churchill engine has been restored ahead of the 50th anniversary of the politician's funeral later this month and is set to go on display in the Great Hall of the National Railway Museum in York as part of its Churchill's Final Journey exhibition. So Winston Churchill's state funeral took place on the 30th of January 1965 at St Paul's Cathedral. After the service, which was attended by the Queen and statesmen from 112 countries, his body travelled by train to Churchill's final resting place in Bladen, Oxfordshire. Thank you, Emma. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that we have two upcoming reader events taking place this March. On the 21st and 22nd of that month, we're holding two-day events themed around Magna Carta and Waterloo. At each of these days, you'll get the chance to hear from a selection of expert speakers and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more details and tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And as always, BBC History magazine subscribers will get discounted entry. Our second interview this week is with Thomas Asbridge a medieval historian at Queen Mary, University of London. Thomas has just written a biography of William Marshall, 
a celebrated 12th century knight who was the Lancelot of his day. Marshall had a long-term friendship with Henry the Young King, and it is that relationship that is the subject of an article Thomas has written for our latest issue. I spoke to Thomas a few weeks back to get the lowdown on these two fascinating characters. Could you just briefly explain who Henry the Young King was and why, if he was a king, he doesn't have a number after his name, like, say, Henry VIII or something? Indeed. Well, Henry the Young King, or Young Henry, as he's sometimes known to distinguish him from his father, Henry II, who became known as the Old King, even though he was only in his early 40s when uh, his son was crowned as king, deserves our, our recognition really far more, I think, than he has generally achieved both amongst professional historians and certainly in popular imagination. He is technically a fully-fledged king of England because he underwent a formal coronation twice, first time in uh, 1170 and then again in 1172. But the critical fact was that he died before his father actually died. So young Henry died in 1183. His father, the old king, Henry II, wouldn't die until 1189. So he was always the young monarch in waiting. He'd been crowned in, in 1170 with the express intention to avoid the kind of crisis of succession that had been witnessed uh, during the anarchy of King Stephen in previous decades. So the idea that this was going to safeguard England from a chaotic succession, unfortunately, it brought uh, just more forms of chaos because Henry II was unwilling to give his elder son any real power. And over time, young Henry became increasingly anxious and impatient at that. It strikes me as being quite an unusual arrangement. Do we know of any other English or British kings who were crowned while their father was still alive? Well, you actually have to go back well before the Norman Conquest, before 1066, uh, to only find one extant example in the early medieval period. So in England, it was very rare. On the continent, it was much more common. Uh, and it was a, it was a fairly well-established practice. The critical thing was, of course, that you, first of all, it worked best if the person who'd crowned their heir early died relatively quickly afterwards. If they did that, then historians tend to praise them as being wise, looking to the future, securing their succession. Uh, If they don't, if they hang on for, for years or even decades, as is the case with Henry II, then things start to become more problematic. The other thing that becomes an issue is whether the surviving king is willing to give any real power, any real territory to their heir, to allow them to flex their muscles, to develop some sense of their own authority. And most crucially, one of the, the arguments that I try to make uh, in the study I've, I've given of, of young Henry is there's also an internal pressure on a figure like Henry the Young King. And that comes from the knights who support him, the people who are in his military retinue, what we technically call his mainy, the kind of the inner circle of supporters. And those individuals uh, within a medieval setting expected to get rewards if they continued in loyal service. And the most important of those rewards was land. And for a man like Henry the Young King, if he didn't have land himself, he had no land to give to his supporters. And that put him in a a very tricky position. So would you say that overall he was quite hamstrung by being crowned at this young age? I think in the way things developed, he was. What's remarkable, and again, often overlooked by historians, is that uh, he was crowned early in uh, the summer of 1170, in June 1170. Less than two months later, his father suffered a really serious illness while he was on the continent, away from England. 
And rumors even came across the channel that Henry II had died and people were preparing to proclaim young Henry as the new king. And at that moment, it looked like it had been you know, the wor- a work of absolute genius to crown Henry early. Um, as it was, Henry II recovered. Uh, he survived for another 19 years. And uh, unfortunately, also because Henry II was part of one of the most dysfunctional families in English history, the Angevin dynasty, then we, we see really a viper's nest of family intrigue develop in the years that follow. And um, the other main character in this story is William Marshall. When does William Marshall first become acquainted with Henry the Young King? So that happens almost immediately, we think, after Henry's coronation in 1170. So up to this point, William Marshall has had a, a fairly un, you know, unremarkable career. He's born as, uh, at birth, the younger son, the second son of a minor noble, uh, a man called John Marshall, a West Country Anglo-Norman nobleman. And William Marshall, because he's a younger heir, he's not going to inherit land or title himself. So he's packed off to Normandy to learn the craft of warfare, to become a knight, and starts to get some some real practice at arms from around uh, 11... 66 onwards. But up to this point, he's, you know, he's really done nothing particularly remarkable. He then is uh, engaged in a campaign in southern France, in Aquitaine, alongside Henry II and his maternal uncle, a man called Earl Patrick of Salisbury. Just so, and it just so happens that he's also working to protect Henry II's famous uh, and celebrated wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, in southern France. As it happens... William Marshall ends up being brought into the entourage of Eleanor of Aquitaine to serve first for two years as one of her knights in her retinue. And it seems to be through her promotion, her support, that he gets this new job in 1170 as working as Henry the Young King's tutor in arms as one, and one of the leading members of his retinue. What kind of a relationship do Henry and William develop? Well, initially, I think we can't say categorically that they're the closest of friends. Uh, It probably takes some years for them to establish this close relationship that we see developing. We can tell, uh, both through looking at the the key source we have for William Marshall's life, what's known as the history of William Marshall, the biography that was written about him uh, five to six years after his death in the early 13th century. We can tell by using that and by also using surviving documents, charters issued by uh, the young king himself, that William was high up in his council. So he's one of the leading people to offer his witness to charters. He's described in the the history of William Marshall as being eventually uh, Henry the Young King's leading retainer. And I think by the time we get to the mid to late 1170s, there's no doubt that William Marshall has, has risen alongside the Young King to become a really significant figure. How did the two, they became friends, I guess, how did they spend their time? Well, traditionally, historians have suggested that they did very little other than run around the tournament fields of northern France, engaging in a love and a passion for tournament going and for the developing art or cult of chivalry. What I would suggest is that their relationship and their careers are a little bit more variegated than that, a little bit more interesting. There's no doubt that in the later 70s, they do commit themselves to the the tournament circuit. But I also think they have a really significant relationship in terms of pursuit of both political power and uh, military might. Because we shouldn't forget that Henry, the young king, launches two separate uh, rebellions against his father's authority, the first in 1173 and then the second 10 years later in 1183. And 
it's often forgotten that these are serious plays for power. And because Henry the Young King died in 1183 in pretty ignominious circumstances, he contracted, suddenly contracted a, a really severe bout of dysentery, died in pretty appalling agony in southern France. People tend to look back on him as an insignificant figure, a man who really was just a, a playboy of the tournament circuit. What they ignore is that, like some of his uh, siblings, like men like Richard the Lionheart, he was someone who really ardently pursued political and military power in a real sense. And I think William Marshall was one of his key supporters in that, that regard. You mentioned he rebelled against his, his father twice. So why did he do that? And, and having done that, how was he able to survive as the, the heir to the throne after it failed? Well, in the first instance, in 1173, the spat really came about because Henry II was trying to impose his will. What, what Henry, the old king, wasn't really willing to do was to let any ounce of power in what we might call the Ungevin heartland, so the, the heartlands of his authority both in England and in the, on the continent in places like Normandy and Anjou. He wasn't willing to let any of that go. So his key approach to managing the interests of his family and keeping his aspiring sons at bay was to basically keep them hungry, keep them begging as much as possible and to give them as little as possible. And this came to a head in 1173 when uh, Henry II essentially told Henry the Young King in public that he was not going to be getting any clear portion of land uh, before the old king died. And I think at that moment... Henry II was, was expecting his, his elder son to just back down, to just accept his lot. But it, young Henry wasn't willing to do that. And he actually fled from the royal court, took his retinue with him, and went off to forge an alliance with the, the King of France, uh, Louis VII, who was essentially the, the leading figure of the Angevin's arch rivals, the Capetian royal house of France. And for the next year or so, Henry the Young King is one of the leading figures in a, in a really widespread rebellion against Henry II's authority. Unfortunately, at that point, uh, unfortunately, at least from Henry the Young King's perspective, he doesn't have particularly agile or effective allies. Louis VII, as King of France, is fairly ineffective as a military commander. And over time, Henry II is able to bed down, to, to weather the storm and to reassert his authority. Turns out, that he's not massively aggressive in the way he treats his elder son, even though he's, you know, he's faced this rebellion from him. He decides to basically confine him to court, to confine him to being in England, to being in, within his own royal presence for the next year. And you know, once that period's gone, been gone through, then eventually Henry the Young King and William Marshall are allowed to go back onto the continent. And I think it's only then that they start to look for advancement elsewhere. They've, they've had one stab at trying to develop political power and to gain land through uh, rebellion. Now they try to find it in a different setting, the setting of the tournament. What was the importance of the tournament at this time in the 12th century? So I think we've, we've understood for a long time that a number of very interesting things are coming together in the, the mid part of the 12th century. It's been about 50 to 60 years of time have passed since a really coherent sense that a new warrior class is emerging in the central Middle Ages, the, the class that we call that of the knight. And by the middle part of the 12th century, the, the rituals, the ideals, the practices of this class are really starting to coalesce. Alongside that, there's a, an emerging sense that the behavior of this class should in some way be tempered, should be controlled, that they might have to adhere to some form of code of practice. And it's that practice that we call chivalry. Uh, those ideas, those ideas of knighthood as, a, as an identity and chivalry as a code of practice find their ultimate expression in what we call tournaments. 
Now, the, the easy thing would be to imagine, you know, if we draw on a kind of Hollywood perspective of the Middle Ages, to think of these as very mannered events, perhaps to think first and foremost of jousts, so two knights uh, on great big charging horses with lances leveled, uh, doing what we would essentially call a tilt in a joust. But tournaments in the 12th century were a very different affair. They were basically large-scale war games fought by teams of knights across very, very wide tracts of land. So we're talking a tournament field could be as much as 30 miles or 40 miles wide of open territory. And by the 1160s, the 1170s, these events, these tournaments, have become the absolute uh, pinnacle of a setting in which knights can demonstrate their prowess, can earn chivalric renown, and uh, they become uh, the area and the arena in which both Henry the Young King and William Marshall immerse themselves. And, and if you do well in a tournament, you could gain quite a lot of political advantages with that, right? Well, the, the gains are manifold or manifold, I would suggest. So I think the thing that we've understood for, for a long time is that knights who engage in this kind of practice can gain renown. They can also gain some very practical rewards. So for a man like William Marshall, the rewards are quite straightforward. Not only can he increase his fame, but he can also gain a huge amount of money. Because the way the games work, essentially you, you set out to try to capture your opponents, either by bludgeoning them into submission or by gaining control of uh, your opponent's horse. And that, that opposing knight then, once he's taken captive, has to pay a ransom to be released. And that can come in the form of a cash payment, or sometimes it also means he has to give up control of his horse or, or bits of his arm or equipment. So there's lots to be gained financially. And we know that from the history of William Marshall, this biography written in the early 13th century, that William gained a huge amount of money in the late 1170s. This is really how he started to emerge as a significant figure, because he got both the renown and the wealth to go with it. The thing that I think has been less understood is that not only is it, is it renowned, not only is it wealth that you can gain, but it's also associated political prestige and influence. People have undervalued, I think, the real gain that someone like Henry the Young King could achieve through immersing himself in the tournaments scene. Because what he achieves in the late 1170s is celebrity within a really rarefied uh, world, the world in which the, the most powerful men of northern France are operating, men like Philip Count of Flanders, people who are passionate in the same way that Henry the Young King and William Marshall are about the, the tournament scene, but are also really serious political players, people who are trying to, to grapple for power, to influence both the English crown and the French crown. And the celebrity and the renown that Henry the Young King gains through his participation in tournaments, I think, brings him real political authority on uh, you know, the stage of the real medieval world. When does this friendship between William Marshall and Henry the Young King come to an end? Well, it doesn't really come to an end until Henry the Young King dies. Uh, it definitely goes through what we would describe, uh, perhaps politely, as a fairly significant blip in late 1182. So... The pair have been very, very closely associated for more than a decade. They've spent a good number of years immersing themselves in the tournament scene. Both of them have achieved significant renown. And then really as a bolt out of the blue, an accusation is leveled against William that he has been carrying out an adulterous affair with Henry the Young King's French wife, a woman called Marguerite. He's also accused of having in some way sought to denigrate the Young King's name or to, to push his own 
uh, reputation above that of the young king. And that's perhaps the more serious accusation, the one that maybe has more grounding in reality. My own view is that I think we can be fairly certain that the accusation of adultery was actually made because it's recorded in the history of William Marshall itself. So a source that is incredibly positive about William Marshall in general chooses to record this very, very serious accusation. And I think it does so because it wants to try to do to diffuse that accusation, to refute it. Uh, so to me, at least, that suggests that the accusation was actually made. I think we're in much less certain ground if we're trying to decide whether it had any basis in fact. I think it's, it's very unlikely that there was actually an adulterous affair, not least because Henry the Young King doesn't exact a, a really serious punishment uh, against William Marshall. I mean, his, his contemporary, the man I mentioned earlier on, Philip of Flanders, accuses someone else, one of his retinue, of having an affair with his wife and executes the individual in the most appalling manner you could imagine. He has him hung upside down with his head in a sewer until he suffocates. So that's the kind of treatment that you might expect if you could be proven to have carried out an adulterous affair. William Marshall gets slightly less uh, vicious treatment. So he's banished from Henry the Young King's court. He goes into a brief period of exile. But then in the course of the second rebellion that Henry the Young King carries out, Marshall is recalled back to the Young King's side. Do we know where these accusations would have come from? Did William have any enemies that might, might have created them? Yeah, the history is quite specific about that, at least in some terms. So it says that there's a group of five individuals inside the Young King's retinue who decide to cook up these accusations. And it appears that they did so primarily because of jealousy, that William Marshall's star had risen very, very fast and very high in the retinue of the Young King. Essentially, he'd achieved the kind of fame and the kind of wealth that, that others were not achieving in that period. And at least according to the history, this is, you know, these accusations are, are leveled primarily out of jealousy, out of envy and out of a desire to see William brought back down to earth. And for a brief period, that succeeds, in, at least into the extent that he's exiled. Even having said that, William Marshall's fame is sufficient that even during his period of exile, he's able to find employee. It appears he's hired by other leading nobles to be part of their tournament teams during this period of exile. And, and it's not as if he becomes a pauper. Why did Henry launch his um, second rebellion against his father? Again, it, it comes down to a degree of impatience, I think. Things have moved on significantly in the 10 years since the first rebellion. The, mo the most important development is that his younger brother, but by, from our perspective, a much more famous brother, Richard, the man who's going to become Richard the Lionheart or Richard I, King of England, is now in his adulthood. And unlike Henry the Young King, Richard has been given a real territory to control, the territory of the Duchy of Aquitaine. So Richard has real power, and I think that's... That is deeply irritating for a man like Henry the Young King. And he sees an opportunity in Aquitaine to try and steal some of that land from his brother, not least because Richard has developed a pretty unsavory reputation for treating his Aquitanian subjects with uh, a high degree of violence. And he's not, not exactly known for his gentle treatment. So there's a lot of uh, antagonism towards Richard within Aquitaine. Henry looks to capitalize on that and engineer a rebellion. And in, at least initially, I think it looks as though his father, Henry II, was willing to see how the dust was going to settle. I think he realized that his eldest son was, was trying his luck, trying to see whether he could overthrow his brother. And Henry II was the kind of man, I think he was looking for the strongest heir he could find. And initially, at least, I think he was willing to see whether the young king would be able to get a portion of his power, would be able to overthrow his brother. And as it turned out, that's not the way the dice fell, and 
within a relatively short period of time, Henry the Young King finds himself fighting against both Richard the Lionheart and his father through the early months of 1183. And it was around this point also then that he became ill and, and he died. Um, so what happened to William Marshall afterwards? Because I believe he had quite an illustrious career following Henry's death. Yeah, I think it's true to say, I, well, given that I've just spent the last three years of my life researching William's life and I've recently written a, bi- a biography of him, you have to take my what I say about him, I suppose, with a, a small dose of salt because it's the natural thing. If you spend your life immersed studying someone's career that you're going to think they're the most extraordinary individual living. I've tried to, to maintain an even keel in my view of William Marshall, but I do think his career is extraordinary. I think he was a remarkable individual, although he was uh, not without his failings. That's without a doubt. But his rise um, after Henry the Young King's death was meteoric. So he went on to become a leading retainer, first of Henry II, even though he'd been party to these two rebellions. He brought into the to the Angevin court. He served Henry II, then Richard the Lionheart, and then ultimately King John in the early part of the 13th century. By this point in the early 13th century, William's become one of the great landed barons of England. So he becomes Earl of Pembroke. He has a series of castles. He has land on the, the Welsh March and in Ireland. And after King John's death, he actually even becomes Regent of England itself. So he goes to the absolute apogee of power, serving as the guardian of the realm for the young Henry III. And was he also involved in sort of continued adventures outside of Britain as well? Outside of Britain, certainly up until the early part of the 13th century. So up to this point, we have to really think of the English crown as being party to a much larger realm or empire, what we call the the Angevin realm or empire. So a territory that stretched at its fullest extent, right from the, the borders in the north of Scotland down to the Pyrenees in the south of France. So this is a huge territory that far eclipses that, for example, of the, the king of France himself. But over time, particularly under the the reign of King John, that Angevin realm collapses. And so it's in the early years of the 13th century that William fights alongside King John to try to hold on to that continental territory. Most of it, if not virtually all of it, is lost by 1205. And from that period onwards, then most of William Marshall's career is confined either to England, Wales or or Ireland. And in the latter years, then then he's party to the drafting of Magna Carta in 1215. And then perhaps the most significant contribution he makes in terms of salvaging the future of the what we would think of as the English royal family, so the Plantagenet dynasty that emerges after Henry III. William fights in 1217 to secure Henry III's right to remain on the throne and helps to defeat both the baronial rebels and the invading French force at the famous Battle of Lincoln in 1217. And it's that moment that, that really seals the future of the Plantagenets. Now, I've heard William described before as the greatest knight. Do you think that's a fair description of him? I think it's fair to say that he was one of the greatest knights of his generation. And, and he would probably be up there amongst one of the greatest knights of the Middle Ages. I think we have got to realise, of course, that he's the greatest knight in many ways because of what we know about him. There are other knights who may have been, for example, on the tournament field or on the battlefield as as able warriors or even as, as gifted generals as he was. But they didn't have people who then, after their death, wrote a biography about their lives. William's biography that was written around 1225 is the first known biography of a medieval knight. Up to that point, all the biographies we have are either for royal figures or for religious figures. And this is the first time we get the view of someone from this class. And I think that that helps in no small measure to guarantee 
William a degree of immortality and a, gre- a degree of reputation as the greatest figure. Having said that, I don't think it's all manipulation. I don't think it's all bias. I think he does achieve extraordinary things. He rises in a manner that really is unrivaled by any of his contemporaries. Uh, so I think he has a fair claim to being one of the greatest, if not the greatest knight. And I suppose a sort of contrary figure to William is Henry, who's almost disappeared from popular history knowledge. Why do you think he's not better known, considering he was crowned king? I have to say, that's one of the things I really wasn't expecting when I set out three years ago um, to work on this project. I knew already a lot about William Marshall's career. I knew the broad contours of the work I was going to be doing. But I I guess I'd fallen under the same kind of impression that most other historians had, that Henry the Young King was this foppish dandy, not good for much. You know, they describe him very often as feckless or a playboy. And it's only when you start to dig into the closest contemporary uh, material, when you start to compare his achievements to those of his, his near rivals or siblings like Richard the Lionheart, that I think a different picture emerges. And I think we've allowed ourselves as historians to be too easily seduced by some of the propaganda that was released after his death to blacken his name. And we haven't really taken him on his own terms, haven't tried to look at his achievements in a more measured manner. And I really strongly hope that over the coming years, interest in Henry the Young King's life will be rejuvenated and he'll be given a better press. And I think a lot of that is going to come. There's a very important academic, very significant medievalist called Matthew Strickland, who's preparing a new biography of Henry the Young King. And I think that's going to be uh, something, something to look out for. That was Thomas Asbridge. You can read his article about William and Henry in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned before, is on sale now. Thomas's book, The Greatest Night, The Remarkable Life of William Marshall, The Power Behind Five English Thrones, has just gone on sale in the UK, published by Simon & Schuster. It is also available in the US, published by Echo. And that is pretty much all for this week. Do join us next time when we'll be exploring the reigns of some of Britain's best-known monarchs. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.